Well, this morning, uh, we have the privilege and the pleasure to welcome uh, a guest preacher um, who is going to bring God's Word to us this morning. Um, And a lot of you will probably know our preacher. It's uh, Pastor James Reisner. He is the husband to one wife, Jenny, and they have four children together. He is a pastor, the lead pastor at Brantwood Baptist Church in Riverside. Um, He is also, he serves on the advisory board for Safe Families of Greater Dayton, and he and his family serve as a host family uh, for uh, Safe Families, Um, and actually that was one of the ways that that he and I got to to know each other a little bit. Uh, He has his doctorate Uh, from the Southern Seminary and Systematic Theology. Uh, But honestly, I mean, all those things are great. Uh, But but really, James has been a true friend uh, to to me, to Garrison, and and to our church over the past few years. Uh, And um, we are just so incredibly thankful for him and uh, how he has encouraged us and uh, and provided counsel along the way. So if you want to, brother, come up here and I'll pray for you. So glad to have you. Father, we, uh, we are grateful for partners in the gospel throughout the Miami Valley. Yes. And uh, especially thankful for this brother James. Lord, I pray that you would bless him now as he preaches your word, that you would help him to make much of you and bring you glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor JJ, and thank you, Elder Body, for the invitation to come and to share God's Word with you. I just think so much of you and your pastors here. God's grace is obviously present and evident, and uh, I, I just respect so much what the Veritas community is doing here in this neighborhood and in the city of Dayton. So keep up the good work. You guys just know that your gospel presence, your faithful gospel witness is an encouragement to many other churches in addition to your encouragement to the neighborhood here around you. If you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we will continue walking through the Sermon on the Mount My family and I were able to visit with you all about a month ago. I had a time of sabbatical, of refreshment, personal renewal, and it was a delight to be able to worship with you. I got to hear a few of Pastor Garrison's sermons online as well, and I've been richly fed as a result. And so many of you who have been coming over the weeks, you'll know that we're in chapter 6, and we're diving in this morning to the Lord's Prayer. I will be focusing in on verses 9 and 10 And the verses leading up to that, the title of the sermon series here in the Sermon on the Mount is Whole Person Righteousness. And this morning we're going to talk about the role of prayer in becoming a person characterized by whole person righteousness. And in this text we find the model prayer, or it's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And it's something that many of you perhaps have memorized over the years. You've at least heard it, you've recited it at different times. It is the most famous prayer. And essentially, I want us to drill down and look at the the prayer that Jesus gives us as a model. And I want us to see that when we express in prayer the supremacy of God, His name, His kingdom, His will, when we express the supremacy of God, 
this rightly reorients our hearts and affection Godward. And that Jesus' model prayer, it helps us, assists us, becomes a means of grace to fight against the false pride that we're all so naturally prone to, and then to honor, worship, and obey our Heavenly Father. And at the end of the day, the reason that this matters for us, and the reason that it's significant for us to find our place rightfully under the name, the rule, and the will of God, is because this is what we were created for. This is what it looks like to fulfill our our image-bearing status. This is what it looks like for us to flourish as God intends. And so praying for God's name, kingdom, and will to reign supreme is one of the first steps in the path to true human flourishing. Now, if you will, look with me at at chapter 6. And you can see at the beginning, as Pastor Garrison walked you through, he's, he's already warned them in this sermon, Jesus has, to beware of practicing their righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And in verses 5 through 8, after he is criticizing the way that they give money, by the way that they do charitable deeds, in verses 5 through 8, Jesus literally posterizes the Pharisees. I mean, if you've ever watched a basketball game where there's just a massive dunk and there's somebody else in the picture, usually the back of that person, that's what it means to be posterized. Somebody is dunking on you and embarrassing you. And really what you want to do is what Steph Curry did in an all-star game a couple years ago. I remember seeing some big old tank was coming down the lane and Steph Curry's like, I'm not ending up on somebody's poster. And so he literally comically laid down in the basketball floor so that this guy could just go dunk it without him being in the poster. Now, personally, if I were the Pharisees, if I were these hypocrites, that's what I would have been inclined to do. But they're hard-hearted, and I am too, and in reality, I would have been the same way as they were, just continually butting heads with Jesus, continually coming up against him, and Jesus, on a regular basis, posterizing them and debunking their hypocritical religion that they had developed. You see, Jesus' point has been, and is, throughout all four Gospels, his point is that we must be people who push back against, who avoid the hypocrisy of pretending like we are more than we really are. The Pharisees were engaging in giving money. They were engaging in praying. They were engaging in fasting publicly. But it was all in an attempt to build recognition, to gain notoriety, and to build the power of their own false kingdom. And essentially, the Sermon on the Mount is a rebuttal to this religious system of Jesus' day. It's a manifesto for kingdom citizen living. As citizens of God's kingdom, how should we live? Well, we should live as people who are holy in all of our person. We are righteous. And in modeling the discipline of prayer here, Jesus holds up high, humble communion with God against the Pharisees' hypocritical hubris. Humility, humble prayer, is communing with God, the Father, in privacy and sincerity of heart. Hubris, on the other hand, is pretending to be in communion with the Father in public and duplicity in heart. But as Jesus notes in their babbling, these Pharisees weren't truly communing with God. They were just piling up words, empty phrases, so that other people could see them, and in the end, they missed the entire point. I often think when I read this story and think about the Lord's Prayer here, I often think about how many times when we pray in public, you'll hear people 
using big flowery words that perhaps nobody else understands. And my favorite, truly my least favorite, I'm being sarcastic, my least favorite is when we not only pile on these big empty phrases and vain repetitions, but we also get on our prayer voice. You know what I'm talking about? We get on our prayer voice. You know, you got to get your voice to like a different octave, a different level, a different tone when you're talking to God. And you got to get real big. And oh, Father, we pray. Uh, I'm not really that good at it. Thankfully, I don't think we should try to be good at it. But I can imagine the hypocrites doing this kind of thing, getting on their prayer voice. But in the end, Jesus says, this is not humility. This is not true prayer. This is not true whole person righteousness. This is pride. This is hubris. This is a false sense of elevating yourself higher than you ought to be. So I want us to take a look here that we see in this prayer, essentially Jesus warning against pride. That's, that's at the heart of the, the character, the virtue formation that's happening throughout the Sermon on the Mount. That's at the heart here. It's pride versus humility. Simply stated, pride is thinking too highly of yourself. And many of you are probably familiar with the story of the descent of Lucifer from the favorable presence of God. When Lucifer said, I will be equal to God, Lucifer was denying his created status and trying to elevate himself higher than that to creature or to to creator status. He desired equality with the creator, though he was a creature. And as we all know, pride goes before the fall. Well, pride undergirds a perspective essentially that that in which one views himself too highly and God too lowly. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity that pride is the anti-God state, the position in which the ego and the self are directly opposed to God. He says, quote, Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Let's read the text together, and let's stand together in honor of God's holy word being read. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Jesus says, And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray by your spirit you would penetrate our hard hearts and lead us to acknowledge the supremacy of you in all things, and that above all else we would revere your name, submit to your kingdom, and obey your will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So I want us to walk through this model prayer, uh, understanding the beginning two verses there, these two first uh, uh, sections. 
of the Sermon on the Mount here, uh, right? If you'll notice, if you just take a look at the, the literary function of this, what you'll notice is that the Sermon on the Mount is Matthews 5, 6, and 7, and Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, is right in the center. Now, as Westerners, we tend to take literature and we tend to make an outline out of it. We tend to, to make bullet points and subheadings and all these kinds of things, and that's just generally how we think and how we operate in the West. The literature, though, that Matthew constructed here, as, as the author put it together, he didn't put it together so much in an outline format as we're inclined to do, but he put it together in such a way as to create kind of a mountaintop experience throughout the text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 begins the ascent to the high point, the peak of the mountaintop in this piece of literature. And then as the rest of Matthew chapters 5 through 7 comes down from the mountain, that's what we find after the Lord's Prayer, which is the peak. In other words, this is not only a center of the text, uh, literarily, but there's meaning and significance there in this sense, that the Lord's Prayer is the center theologically as well as to the Sermon on the Mount which is one of the reasons I'm so encouraged that your pastors have broken down the text in this way as to spend a lot of time in the Lord's Prayer. And that I'll be focusing in on, on uh, verses 9 and 10. Because as it's been noted many times, books and books and books, volumes have been written, gallons of ink have been spilled on this prayer, unpacking, describing, explaining. And it's worthy of a lifetime of your consideration. I want us to look at the big picture, though, to see that Jesus' model prayer here is the antidote to thinking too highly of oneself. As it stands at the summit of the Sermon on the Mount, both literarily and theologically, this is at the heart. It's not only true that this is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, which is in many ways the heart of the Gospel of Matthew, it is theologically the heart of the Gospel, and many theologians, commentators, pastors have made this note and observation as well. That in the Lord's Prayer, you find a summary of what we call the gospel, what we call the good news of Jesus. It's an amazing, amazing text that deserves your utmost attention. It's, it deserves the kind of attention that the, the center point of your living room at home deserves. Those of you who are inclined to decorating and making things look nice inside your house, which I have great appreciation for, though no skill for, I do know that if you were in a living room and you had a fireplace and you had a mantle and it was centrally located, that's where you're going to put your prized possession. That's where you're going to put the main thing. That's the feature in the room. And so also the Lord's Prayer is a feature of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've mentioned up to this point, of course, Jesus has given us his kingdom agenda for kingdom citizens, showing us that the blessed, the flourishing, or as Pastor Garrison wonderfully unpacked, the life characterized by the Greek word makarios, flourishing, is one that's not merely externally conformed, but it's a life that's been internally transformed, right? It's about virtues of the heart that have replaced vices of the heart. That human flourishing, very simply, consists not merely in behavior, but also belief. That the flourishing life is the life in which the whole person, the head, the heart, the hands, has been made right with God and conforms to God's character in such a way that we say is righteous, which is why this series is called Whole Person Righteousness. In this prayer, Jesus gives us, very convenient for us, he gives us an intro, a conclusion, and six petitions in the middle. So let your eyes rest on the text. 
In the intro, verses 7 and 8, he explains some things in a contrast. As in, in contrast to the externally oriented righteousness of the hypocrites, he says, I want you to pray like this. Then we get the six statements and then the conclusion in verses 14 and 15. The three things that we'll focus on in our time together is in verses 9 and 10. That is, that we are to be people who fight against hubris and hypocrisy by acknowledging the, the holiness of God's name, the supremacy of God's kingdom, number two, and then thirdly, the need for submission to His will. This is a beautiful prayer. It's, it's again, received a lot of attention one commentator noted this about the prayer, which I thought was very stated very poetically. He said, The Lord's prayer stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell, and in between six brief petitions, everything important in life. We should note also before we spend time talking about what does this mean and how does it apply to our lives, these three things, we should also note that one of the ways we see the Lord's Prayer unpacked throughout the Gospels is that Jesus not only taught the disciples and said, pray like this, but Jesus lived this. We should note that one of the reasons why the Lord's Prayer is so inexhaustible and deserves a lifetime of study is because each of the things that Jesus taught his disciples to pray were things that characterized Jesus' lifetime. In fact, many commentators have noted the similarities between Jesus' prayer here in Matthew 6 and then his prayer later in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night when he was betrayed to be crucified. In anguish, he was sweating great drops of blood and he prayed. Uh, he, was, he was anticipating the torture of the cross, the betrayal of those closest to him, and ultimately, supremely, he was anticipating that the cup of the Father's wrath would be poured out on him. And in, in extreme anguish, he prayed. And many have noted the similarities between that prayer and this prayer. It's kind of a bookend in some ways. This at the beginning and that toward the end. But Jesus' life lives out. He models this. And in the garden, he prayed, Not my will, but thine be done. In other words, Jesus doesn't just give us words to say, but his life and example to watch and follow. He modeled whole righteous person righteousness uh, effectively. And, and why is this necessary for me to say? Here's why. Because so many times it's, it's so easy for us to go through the routines and the motions of prayer, particularly in memorizing this prayer and then reciting this prayer. But what we have done, if we recite this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in an attempt to do something of a religious nature in order to be the right kind of person, we've missed the whole point. You see, there's not a single one of us, though we could memorize this word for word, you could even memorize it in the Greek and recite it. I mean, just the pure of the pure, you could do that. But the mere recitation of these words is not what makes you right with God. The, the mere recitation of this word is not what characterizes a vibrant prayer life. We need one who prayed this prayer in full sincerity and truth, but also we need one who lived this prayer in our place. And friends, that's the good news. Jesus gave us the, gave us the prayer, prayed the prayer from the sincerity of his heart with perfection through the reign of all of his life, 
and through the duration of his life, he lived this prayer in our place. He submitted to the holiness of God's name, the the universal rule and reign in his kingdom, and he obeyed to the, the will of the Father. Because the reality is that no matter how many times we would repeat this prayer, we could not be right with God apart from the accomplishment of Jesus' life of living these realities out. And so this doctrine of union with Christ becomes central and key in the idea of being right with God. We need Jesus. We need to be in Jesus and Jesus in us in order for us to be able to be people who are whole, holy, righteous. So when you look at this, and you remember even last week as Pastor Garrison walked through some of the hypocrisy in the, the charitable deeds of almsgiving of the hypocrites, but then he says in verses 5 how the, the hypocrites prayed out loud in public, in the street corners, sounding the trumpet. Uh, when they do this, we see that Jesus uh, tells us this, and I believe Matthew records us this, Uh, so that we might find ourselves in the story, not naturally as the one praying and living the prayer. There's only one who did that, that's Jesus. But we find ourselves naturally in the story in the role of the hypocrite. We are the ones who give money, pray empty prayers, and fast publicly to be seen by others. So the model prayer comes to us as a confrontation to our hypocritical hearts and reorients them away from pride to humility. You see, what we call the Lord's Prayer is perhaps better called the Disciples' Prayer. You see, Jesus prayed this prayer as a prayer of, this is what I am doing and accomplishing with my life. Jesus didn't need to pray this prayer in anticipation of the work God was going to do in his heart. This has been better called the Disciples' Prayer, because this is the prayer that we need. This is the prayer we need, naturally oriented toward the hypocritical stance of building our kingdom, doing things our way, making our name be heard. And in response to that, in rebuttal to that, this is the disciples' prayer as a petition of desire. That's why, verses 9 and 10, he says, May these things come to pass. Now, God was ruling supreme, supreme, in Jesus' heart in this time. So again, Jesus wasn't praying this as a prayer of petition, but as a prayer of reality. You and I approach this and we say, God, may you by your grace and by your power, may you make these things a reality. This is our desire as well, so bring them to pass in our lives. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and we know that because of the very first words, our Father. He begins the prayer, Jesus does, with an acknowledgement of our loving relationship with God. That he is our father and we are his children. Another central point that it deserves, it just merits so much time and attention that I'll summarize for you. This is, in, in this text, in verse 9, this is the ninth time that God is called our father in the Sermon on the Mount out of 17 total times in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the ways you try to understand the, the main point of what an author is trying to get across is you look at how often and, and how significant they repeat things, Right? Well, that's exactly what Matthew's doing here and Jesus has done is referred to God as our Father. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Now, had Jesus not bidden us to call God Father, we would be very presumptuous to do so. And we know that because of what he says. Our Father, so there's your term of intimacy, communion, connection, relationship. But he doesn't just 
call God our homeboy or, hey, buddy. He says, our Father in heaven. One of the great mysteries of the Christian faith is how we acknowledge and embrace both realities that God is far off and above and unknowable and incomprehensible and at the same time, the divine, the transcendent, the one who is eternally existent, has come and made himself known to us. He's revealed himself to us so that God is not merely far off and removed, but he's also present. And that's encapsulated here in that very first phrase. Our Father, the one we know, the one we love, the one who loves us, the one we're in relationship with, and at the same time, he's in heaven. This blows my mind. And I cannot adequately explain to you this mystery of God being both transcendent and imminent, both far off and close, but it is our reality. What a gracious thing it is when Jesus invites us to call God, the eternal creator of the universe, our Father. Jesus not only models it here in the prayer, but he accomplished it, and he brought us into his family. You see, the reality is, I don't care how many country songs you listen to, we're not all God's children. There are many songs written to that effect. There's a lot of popular opinion that we're all God's children. But if that would be the case, then why does Romans 8 talk about the work of Christ accomplishing our adoption as sons and daughters? He has adopted us into the family, so we, when we pray and commune with the Father, we're able to do so as Father. We're able to commune with Him. This was shocking in this day and time. You see, there, there was a uh, Jewish... Uh, historian named Jehoiakim Jeremias, and he says this, nowhere in the Old Testament rabbinic writings do we find a Jewish person praying to God directly as father. In fact, if you look through the Old Testament, though God was present and though God spoke and he used prophets and priests and kings to mediate his presence in the Old Testament, we do not find in the Old Testament this designation of intimacy to refer to God as our Father. In fact, this tradition was so strong that it was only in the 10th century A.D., a thousand years after the time of Christ, we have record of the first Jew who addressed God as Father, except for Jesus. So every prayer except one in Jewish tradition, Jesus addressed God as Father. Now, the Jews, of course, had a list of names that were acceptable to refer to God, but Father is absent. God was referred to indirectly or generically, abstractly, as the Father of the human race, but never Father in an intimate, relational manner. And the fact that in Jesus' day that he would, in that time and culture, refer to God and lead his disciples to pray, Our Father, was a radical departure from the Jewish tradition. Notice also that not only is he a Father, Jesus doesn't refer to him as Father generically, but Jesus leads his disciples to pray, and he leads us to pray, our Father. Christianity is inherently a communal reality. It is inherently embodied with people in such a way that if I had more time or had a desire to get on this hobby horse a little bit, a little bit more strongly, this flies in the face of the radical individualism that is so important in our society here. I'm not just talking about Dayton, Ohio. I'm talking about the West. We have individualized and privatized our spirituality, our religion so much. But in saying, pray like this, our Father, Jesus was teaching us this is a communal thing. 
This is a family. We are sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, and we approach him as a community with hearts knit together by the good news of Christ. We're knit together. We're adopted into his family. And when we commune with him in sincerity, we do not need to heap up empty phrases. In fact, if you'll notice at the end of uh, 7 and 8, verse 8 tells us, do not be like the hypocrites, heaping up empty phrases, You don't need to manipulate this God as if he's some far-off, distant guy that you don't really know. You don't need to do that. Your Father knows, verse 8 says, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. There's a loving relationship inherent here. And let Let me encourage you, friends, that if you're here today and you're feeling afflicted, you're feeling distant, you feel like God's not there, you're not really sure if He has your back, you're not really sure if He has your best interests at heart, you're not really sure what's happening in the world around you and there are circumstances or people that are out of your control. Trust God's Word today. Believe God's Word that God is our loving Father. And even when we don't feel like it, His fatherliness, His fatherly love for us isn't contingent on the guilt and shame of your past, the mistakes that you've made. His fatherliness toward us is contingent upon His benevolence, His love, His adoption. And there is great freedom and comfort in that, my friend. In light of verses 7 and 8, it is highly ironic that this prayer has come to be repeated mechanically in many Christian traditions. In fact, in the first and second centuries following this, there was already an established tradition in the Didache. They were taught to pray this prayer, repeat it three times during the day. But that's not what I want you to walk away from here doing, is merely repeating, Our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to focus not so much on memorizing the words, the phonetics of this, so that you can repeat them mechanically. I want you to take the message of Matthew chapter 6, And I want you to let Jesus' prayer for his disciples inform the way that we pray from our hearts. You see, in leading us to pray that God's name be hallowed, that God's kingdom come, that God's will be done, Jesus' model prayer essentially, if I could summarize it and say what do all three things have in common here, the holiness of God's name, the supremacy of his kingdom and his will, what do they tie together to do? What What does that overlapping Venn diagram show us at the center? It shows us very centrally that in our prayer, we pray that God would reorient our life perspective and our affections and our heart and the way that we think, that God would use this prayer to reorient us from being man-centered to God-centered. When he says, your name be holy... Or, hallowed be your name, is the traditional way that we pray this. To say, God, may your name be hallowed, in other translations, is referred to as praying, God, may your name be set apart. May your name be acknowledged as holy. May your name be acknowledged as sanctified, as pure. The reality of God's distinctness and otherness it, it, it blows our minds in a way that we can never fully wrap our minds around or understand. But God in His perfection and in His purity and in His holiness sets Him apart in such a way that in our life perspective, praying, hallowed be your name, 
says, God, may we respect you and revere you as the one who is worthy of all of our worship. In our culture, it's common for us to use God's name in vain as a throwaway word when we're surprised, a throwaway word when we're angry. And if we can tag God's name in there somehow, then in our idolatry, it makes us feel better or makes us have acceptance from friends around us. This pushes against that to say, no, sanctify, treat God's name as it truly is, that is, that God is holy. The second thing here in verse 10 is an expression for God's kingdom to come. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reality is that each of us are just like the hypocrites in this text. Jesus gives us the disciples' prayer so that we might, in this prayer, reorient our hearts to say, I'm confessing that I've been building my little kingdom. But I'm praying, God, that you would help me to let my kingdom die and your kingdom thrive. That's the way it's going to be in the end. God's kingdom will reign supreme. He will be demonstrated to be the true King of kings and Lord of lords. But we live in this strange in-between time in which his kingdom has been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. So we, in this year, 2019, look back and say Jesus' kingdom has come, but we also look forward in anticipation to the fact that his kingdom is coming. It's here, but not yet fully here. And in this in-between time, we have this unique privilege as God's family to attest to, to speak to, and to proclaim to the world that the kingdom has come and that his kingdom is coming and that his kingdom will come. Much like we say, I was saved back then, I am being saved right now, and I will be saved. That's true of the community of God's people. That's true of his church. We are being purified, saved, sanctified, set apart, made more holy, made more pure along this beautiful journey. And when we pray, your kingdom come, we say, God, I've been building my little kingdom at work. I've been trying to build my little kingdom, my own identity on social media. I've been filtering all my images in such a way that it looks like my life is all together. I've been building my little kingdom in my family. I've been building my kingdom in my neighborhood. I've been building my kingdom at work. Inherent in all of these kingdom building activities is the wrong idea that you are king of your life. The Lord's Prayer, it invites us in to a flourishing reality in which we acknowledge that that is pure hubris and hypocrisy for us to pretend as if we can control our lives, for us to pretend as if we can control the people around us. Friend, the invitation is that you would give that up and relinquish that perceived control, that perceived kingdom building, and you would say, God, may your kingdom come. Friends, I'm looking forward to the day, as Amos chapter 5, verse 24 says, when God's justice flows like rivers. I'm looking forward to the day when every destitute widow that lives in our midst today is not taken advantage of, but has all the wrongs done against her, has all those wrongs righted. I'm looking forward to the day when all the millions and millions of orphans in the world that, uh, that do not belong to a family, I'm looking forward to the day when God's justice flows like a river and they are brought into a family. 
I'm looking forward to the day when all those who are oppressed, I'm looking forward to the day when all those who are marginalized, I'm looking forward to the day when every injustice in the world, when every mass shooting, when every suicide, when every horrible atrocity happens in our world, I'm looking forward to the day when God's kingdom comes and the king sets everything that's been wrong right. Friends, if you're looking forward to that too, then you're the kind of person that is a kingdom citizen. That's an evidence of the fact that you have been brought into God's family, and you, friends, should be praying on a regular basis. Your kingdom come, God, and even as we grieve and even as our heart hurts because of all the tragedies that our city has experienced in recent months especially, and all of your personal pain and your own story, and all those things that are in the deep recesses of your heart that I don't even know about, those pains and those hurts, you are invited in this disciple's prayer. You're invited to bring those before the Lord and say, your kingdom come. You see, Christians are inherently, intrinsically, characterized by people of faith. In fact, the Hebrews author says, we walk by faith, not by sight. The promise is not, God's going to make your life perfect right now. The promise is, God has overcome evil and all who turn from their own evil confess, repent from that, and turn from that, and believe in him, and acknowledge him as the King of kings and Lord of lords, God will one day right all the wrongs. And we look forward to that second coming of Jesus in which his kingdom comes in its fullness. The third piece here, as we conclude our time in God's word, is that your will be done. So we are people who pray that God's name would be holy, set apart, respected as it truly is, We are people who secondly pray that God's kingdom would come in place of our false kingdoms. And thirdly, we pray that God's will be done. What are we praying when we say these words, your will be done? We're simply praying that God's desires would come to pass. I don't know about you, but I am on the regular fighting against my desires, things that are counter to God's ways, and I'm praying afresh each and every day, God, not my will but thine be done. One of the ways that this has happened, if I could share just briefly a personal way that God's worked this text into my life recently, is my desire when, when God brought us to, back to Dayton, to southwest Ohio where I grew up, and brought us to Dayton in 2013, it came at much struggle discerning God's will for my life. And when I left the previous church family that I'd been serving for the the previous 10 years, when we left, I cried buckets of tears. And it was, uh, my wife will tell you, it was one of the most difficult things that she had ever done and the most difficult thing I had ever done to leave that church family and to come to Brantwood Baptist Church in 2013. But do you know what our prayer was? Not my will but thine be done. And this has happened again recently where through a variety of mentors in my life and direction and prayer, God has led us to say, we've got to be open to what God wants. I'm coming to realize that part of my shortcoming in not acknowledging and inviting God's will to be done in my life is that I have idols in my life, false gods. I have these dreams and pictures of what a flourishing life should look like. And one of them for me was that I would stay in the same church and serve this as, a, as a pastor to the same congregation for all of my life. I think that's a very noble thing to do, don't get me wrong. And I think that's ideal. I think there's a lot of good to that. 
But for me, one of the ways that God has shown me that I had too high of a valuation of that is that he has, through circumstances, led me to put that aside in the spirit of this prayer, not my will but thine be done. Now, some of you, perhaps you're thinking similarly. I know that sometimes it's hard to connect a pastor's vocational life with maybe what your job is, but the same thing applies, doesn't it? I don't know what your kingdoms have been that you've been building. I don't know what the will is that you've been trying to exert over your life in order to be flourishing. Perhaps it was this certain job or this degree or this many kids by this age, or it was uh, being married this many years, or it, it was a whole package of characteristics of you planning out your life and trying to run your life. And guess what? You, you've been filled with disappointments, haven't you? Life doesn't go according to our plan because we're not the king. Life doesn't go according to our will. We're not sovereign. So the, the quickest path, the most sure and steady path to true human flourishing is that we would say, acknowledge, I've got these desires, God, but I give them to you. And they may be right, they may be in line with your will, but they may not be. So rather than me living a man-centered life, I want to live a God-centered life. May your will be done. May your desires, God, come to pass in my life. Can I just share with you, I just had a conversation a couple weeks ago. I was talking with this guy. Long story short, he was dealing with some issues of forgiveness and, and hurt and grief. And he kept coming back to this thing that we hear on an often, uh, often regular basis. He says, well, you know, my dad, he's just got to forgive himself. And as we talked, it became obvious to me that not only was he viewing his life in this way, but his dad as well. They weren't viewing life from a God-centered point of view. They were living their life from a man-centered point of view. And you know what their, great, their biggest conclusion was in, as a result of this? Look, I've made some mistakes in the past, but their conclusion was the number one person that I've wronged in making these poor choices and doing these wrong things, number one person I've wronged is myself. That's why... I can't move forward until I forgive myself. Now, what's wrong with that? Without time to fully unpack all that, I could just say one fundamental thing. Our first and foremost offense, our primary wrong, is not against ourselves. It's against God. There are all kinds of ways in our lives that we let this self-centered view of life creep in to our own agenda, our own will, our own kingdom, our own name. And so what I want to ask you to do today is to ask God's Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, could you help me live this out in my life? I want to be a person who's in your kingdom, who is characterized by making your name holy, by seeing your kingdom come, by seeing your will be done. I want you to be the center and so, God, I know I'm on this journey right now, but could you reveal to me afresh right now? Could you reveal to me something in my life that perhaps I'm holding on to, I'm holding back on? And here's what I can promise you, based on God's word, is that if you will, in prayer, reorient your heart and affections toward God rather than yourself, you will find that all the disappointment, emptiness, and brokenness that you have heaped upon yourself over these years and decades, you will find that that will be replaced with true human flourishing. You will find that you will be in a place and a position, not immediately, but your, your center point 
will change. And just 500 years ago, we believed, uh, until 500 years ago, we believed that everything else in the universe, our solar system, revolved around the sun. But Copernicus came on the scene, and we had what we call now a Copernican revolution. We said, no, it doesn't revolve around the earth, it revolves around the sun. Man, that that insight unlocked so many other insights. Spiritually speaking, this Copernican revolution of making God's will, God's name, God's kingdom, number one in your life, will completely change everything. I want us to pray together. And I want us to confess that though we each one naturally operate as if the universe revolves around us, though we each one love it when our name is called, when our name comes up in lights, when our name's in the headlines, though we each one naturally spend our time, money, and affection building our kingdom, we naturally do what we want and we grant no one else the authority to tell us differently. God has something far better. Let's pray together to that end. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that takes us from being blind and ignorant to being living life with eyes wide open, full of the truth of Jesus. We pray, God, that this prayer that Jesus gave his disciples would instruct us to be people who acknowledge first and foremost that you are the center. Your name is holy. Your kingdom is supreme. People who desire your will to be done. Please, Father, make us into those kinds of people. Help us, Lord, on this journey, even as you've done in my heart and my life in recent months, as it relates to my vocation and career. I pray, Father, that you would do that same kind of work in each heart here. And though we're each in different seasons and each have different manifestations of making ourselves and our will supreme, I pray that you would do what only you can do. You would take your word, you would supernaturally work it deep into our hearts, plant the seed of the gospel truth that Jesus is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. We submit to him today. In his name we pray. Amen.